Welcome to our podcast, Leading Past Limits. We share lessons learned from the hard-won experience of mission-driven leaders so that you expand your horizons as a leader that places service before self. I'm Kumar Kibble, a leadership coach and the principal at GuideQuest. I've been passionate about developing leaders since graduating from West Point more than 30 years ago and have led high-performing teams as a military officer, special agent, diplomat, government, and corporate executive. Now I partner with leaders and teams as a coach to help unlock their potential and maximize their impact. In this first season, join me in learning from entrepreneurs, CEOs, Army generals, police chiefs, war heroes, thought leaders, and more. Be sure to subscribe and don't miss out on lessons learned from the real world School of Hard Knocks. Our guest today, Rudy Karish, retired as a chief patrol agent of the U.S. Border Patrol's Rio Grande Valley sector in December 2019. While in the Rio Grande Valley, he led a workforce of over 3,000 employees in securing the busiest border corridor in the country, countering illegal immigration and narcotic smuggling. His more than 30-year career as a Border Patrol agent includes varied assignments leading task national and internal security operations and programs. I can think of no one better to walk us through the unique leadership challenges associated with securing the border, particularly at this time of unprecedented challenge. Rudy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Kumar. Good to see you. Good to see you. Good to see you. Before we dive into some of your unique background in, in border security, I'd like to just focus on you as an individual leader and your personal development and resilience that prepared you for the challenges that you ultimately went on to, to, uh, to address. So I'll begin with just how, how have you defined your, your personal mission or purpose in your career, in your professional life? Well, my purpose was always uh, to develop others. I think that that's so important in any organization that you're a part of is go out and find those people, get them out of their comfort zone, uh, empower them so that they can go on and lead an organization. I was once told, and I believe this, that you're only a keeper of the chair that you occupy. You eventually have to cultivate uh, those employees and kind of push them along. And I had some very good mentors throughout my career that did the same with me. I think we're always very comfortable in the places that we're at. And it takes yeah. someone is to say, hey, look, I think you need to go out and do something different, learn something different, and then come back and teach people. So what's in, you, you raised two, I think, really important points that really resonated with me, and that's mentors and, and going beyond your comfort zone. Yep. Who did that for you? I had an old chief of mine, and uh, I hope he's not watching this because I don't refer to him <laughs> as old, but he was a great mentor who I met by accident one night, and we developed a relationship over the years. And what made this individual so special to me is regardless of the type of day he was having, he always stopped, acknowledged you as a person, said hello with a smile, and he could be having the worst possible day. But here's someone who took an investment uh, in me as a young agent and helped me along. Now, he'll say to this day, you did that all on your own. But it's always good to have someone that you can turn to and ask advice. The other one is a former commissioner uh, of mine who I have to tell you, there were times when I really questioned whether or not I was doing a good job because he even threatened to fire me. But he turned out to be he turned out to be a tremendous mentor. Uh, he just was a person that expected results, uh, but 
as I told him many times, I'm here for you to also get sound advice on the back end. Uh, you need to have people who can speak truth to power, who are not afraid is to uh, let you know that something is wrong. So that uh, helps you in your decision process uh, as well. So I think I've had some tremendous uh, mentors uh, throughout my career. And I'd also tried to do that during my stints uh, in leadership roles. I, you know, I love the point you just made about being able to bring value to the mentor as yeah. well as a mentee by yes. giving ground truth. Because yes. too often when we've served in the senior positions we serve, you got a lot of folks that are in formal positions that don't want to bring you bad news, yeah. don't want to, um, they just don't want to necessarily uh, rock the boat. And it is so helpful yeah. for a mentee that can present their unvarnished perspective, even if it's incorrect, right? right? Because it's still a perception and perception becomes reality. And it's something that we still have to deal with one way or another. Clearly, there's a messaging issue if they if they have a, a perception that isn't aligned with what the intentions of the organization are. And that's why you have to check your ego as well, uh, because yeah. as you continue to climb the, the leadership ladder, every word you say, every action uh, that you take has consequences. So you've got to be very careful because otherwise people are hesitant to bring you bad news. And that's what you need to hear. You need to have enough confidence uh, in your people uh, to where they also believe that they can bring you a problem and that you're going to help them solve it. How did you challenge people to go, you know, to, to lean into discomfort? Well, first of all, is by exposing them to the unknown. But then after that, recognize that they're going to make uh, mistakes. I constantly told them to this day, 30 years in the organization, I still make mistakes. But that's how you learn from them. Don't be afraid of making mistakes unless you repeat the same mistake over and over again. I think uh, mistakes are part of the process. They're learning opportunities as, that, as long as they're mistakes of the mind. If they're mistakes of the heart, uh, then it's an integrity issue. And we cannot tolerate that. But other than that, you have to give your employees uh, the responsibility of letting them go out on their own, of trying different things. And if they stumble, you help them get up. You help them correct to see the ways of what you, or the direction that you want to go. But you continue to have confidence. in. I've seen for too long an employee who makes a mistake and all of a sudden they're castigated uh, they're put in the proverbial doghouse. They're not let out because of a mistake. That's foolish. How can we expect our people to want to make mistakes if we're too quick uh, is to castigate them? Yeah, I, that's that's hugely important, right? As you said, these mistakes are learning opportunities. Yes. And it's also, I think, uh, why it's so important when they, you know, when you're, you're, they bring you, you know, in the military, I learned, don't bring me a problem, bring me three solutions. Right. And, uh, you know, an important component of that is allowing that person, that direct report to come up with their own solutions. Right. And as long as we're not talking about someone being seriously hurt or that it's illegal or immoral, um, right. it's good to give them the room to figure out how to, to develop their own solutions. See, and I learned early on having managed units, then shifts, uh, then of course sectors with thousands of employees is I was too quick early on is to make those decisions for them. But after a right. while, right. I let them develop uh, when they would come uh, into me to talk about a problem, I would flip it on them. I say, okay, tell me what you would do. And that way right. they start to develop their way of thinking 
And you can always adjust fire as you need to, to say, well, have you thought about this? Is this the direction that you could possibly go? So you're helping them develop their own thought process, but you're also providing them with assistance of someone who's been around uh, other block of right. time or two. Right. You know, and another benefit there, I, I can think of a few occasions where I, I was sure that their plan was going to fail. Yeah. And they, they, they taught me something because they, they figured out an alternative way to, to get to that objective. Um, and in a way that I was locked into kind of the way we've always done it. Right. And well, uh, that's helpful for building an innovative culture as well. Right. Well, especially with the, uh, the young workforce that's coming in now, very educated, mm -hmm. very bright. You have to be able to look at different means and methods uh, to get to a solution. So I think that that's a mistake that the, many of the older generations had is that you were very much stuck in your ways. Give them an opportunity to solve a problem. Maybe it's not going to be the way you wanted uh, to go, but ultimately uh, the outcome is just as beneficial. Now you, uh, we began, you talked about your uh, your purpose in terms of developing others. What have been some some good resources for you, whether it's a book or or something that, that has helped you develop as a leader? What would well, you recommend to our audience? Well, first of all, I can't uh, stress enough uh, that anyone who is in an organization and looking to climb, you have to continue to develop yourself. Self development is of utmost importance. I used to tell the workforce all the time, it is not my job to develop you, it's your job to develop yourself. So look for those opportunities to get additional training uh, and development. Uh, I also turned to something that was at my fingertips all the time, which were books. I love biographies. I've read numerous biographies on successful people and even some that were not successful because I think that they give you so many life lessons that you can pick on. Uh, up on. Uh, one of my favorites was Chesty Puller. I think we've had this conversation in the past. Uh, selfless service of allowing his troops to eat before he did. Things that have carried with me uh, over the years in should leadership be the first one uh, at, in a line uh, when you're having some type of celebration. Those are the things that I think we all need to reflect on to look at successful leadership. Uh, and reading about great people and what made them great. So I think reading, I think the self-development, and of course the education uh, piece is key uh, to successful leadership. Well, and you mentioned even looking at biographies of people that have failed, right, or made mistakes mm -hmm. along the way. And as we've talked about, these are, these are learning opportunities. What would you characterize as your biggest failure? Well, I think yeah, my biggest failure was being too rigid, setting a zero tolerance policies uh, and communicating uh, that to people to where it, it, uh, it made me appear to be inflexible. And that was never me, but I think sometimes you get policies uh, that you have to uh, pass down to your uh, employees. So sometimes I think we hurt uh, our employees in uh, our lack of messaging appropriately to them, how you want something carried out. So I wish if I had to do it all over again is simply watch how I message uh, things to, to the workforce because sometimes that caused an inordinate amount of work and oftentimes it also uh, caused hardships. What was your, the messaging 
components kind of interesting. I mean, what was your approach to uh, if you disagreed with the boss, but they made a decision and now it was your task to carry it forward with your team? How did you how did you handle messaging of that? Well, I think anytime you're in a law enforcement uh, agency similar to the military, we all understand that we're going to have policies and directives that we disagree with. But we're professionals. We need to carry out that mission. So, of course, explaining to the employees the mission of what we want to accomplish, recognizing that you may not agree with everything. But at the end of the day, it's still your job. You took that oath of office uh, is to go out there and perform uh, your job, your duties. So just getting them to understand maybe is that there's not total agreement. However, at the end of the day, we're going to follow direction and guidance from above. I think that there's always, I think there's always an opportunity for you to have honest uh, discussion with your staff, but then they also have to uh, recognize that at a certain point, if the decision is made by the higher ups, you carry out that order, unless you, like you said, unless it's illegal, immoral, uh, that's when, of course, you push back. Yeah, you know, I, I um, as a young lieutenant in the army, I mean, the, what they said was, you know. Uh, fight like hell in private yeah. and render your best opinion discreetly and professionally to your yeah. boss. But once the decision's made again, unless it's illegal and moral um, mm -hmm. salute yep. and go out and execute that decision yeah. as if it's the one you would have made. Right. Um, and that's always, you know, it's, that's always been a challenge for me in the sense that I, uh, especially if I think it's a dumb decision, I, I don't really want to be associated with it, <laughs> you know, but, but yet, yeah. We're, as you said, we're professionals. Yes. We're charged to carry it forward. So anybody who's been in government service, as long as you and I have, have seen policies that we scratch our head. But there is that <laughs> opportunity also is to engage with your bosses and you can ask them the really, the really, are we doing this question? But when it comes down to getting uh, the workforce uh, is to carry through, we all have to understand we have a job to do as much as we may dislike it. It is our task yeah. to carry out. Yeah. If you were going to isolate your personal leadership philosophy to a few principles, what what would that be? Well, first of all, it's transparency. I believe that you have to be transparent uh, as a leader. Uh, the empowerment piece I've spoken about, it is so important uh, is to actually empower your workforce. You sitting on top of any agency can't make all the decisions. And the only way you prepare your workforce is by uh, empowering uh, them. Be truthful. You always need to be truthful with your employees. And you also have to demonstrate integrity at all times. Some people seem to think is that integrity stops uh, when you leave the office. That's not the case. People are always looking at you. They're judging you uh, by your actions. And you can never come in and tell an employee that is doing something wrong if you, in fact, are doing the same thing. So it's looking in the mirror, making sure that you get real candid feedback from members of your staff, empowering them, being truthful with them. Uh, those are the traits uh, of things that I think have been so important uh, in my career. I also like to go out and talk to people. Uh, mm -hmm. I think in this day and age, uh, electronic media has played such a significant part. And with some people that are based far away from a sector or a main office, you have to do that. But I also always relish the opportunity to go out and talk to frontline employees without an entourage of people. 
to find out what was really happening. How can I help you? What are we doing wrong? So if that's the kind of feedback that I've always uh, enjoyed to have from people. You know, you're, you're uh, hitting on a lot of the elements that, uh, that we coach on in my company, which is the, these building trust in the workplace, mm -hmm. sincerity, reliability, competence, and care. You've talked about the sincerity, right? Saying what yeah. you mean, meaning what you say, the integrity, walking your talk, the, the importance of competence. And then, you know, again, we began with, with care because you talked about the importance of developing others. One of the things that um, interested me is your, your take on work-life balance. Would you unpack that a little bit? Because that's an important component of, of yeah. our you know, employees' resilience and well-being. So I suffered uh, from that for years, Kumar, to tell you the truth, because I considered myself at times to be uh, a workaholic always committed to the job, especially being in high profile positions. But I learned also from some great leaders that you have to be able to turn the clock and send your employees home. So I think that that's the most important thing that a senior manager can do is say, okay, we have done more than enough for today, unless it's a crisis situation where of course we're going to stay. But you've got to get employees out of the door before six, seven, eight o'clock. I think oftentimes the families suffer and the organization suffers because of it. Because as I always tell people, uh, it's not only the employees that are going to rely upon a manager that has enough rest, that takes care of himself, uh, that exercise. It's the employees' families, okay, that are also going to benefit from this, including uh, the people that work for you. So when they see a leader who's willing to say, hey, enough is enough for today, we can start this back up tomorrow. Uh, and of course, with, with uh, uh, electronics nowadays, iPhones uh, and Androids, it's hard to shut off. But unless something is super critical, you have to wean them of it. And the way I started to tell my staff is short of a critical incident where we had a fatality where an agent was hurt or something, I said, do not send me text messages, call me because I'll know that it's urgent. Otherwise, you tend to want to go to these electronic devices uh, is to see uh, what's wrong. So we have yeah. to wean the workforce. We have to do it. Some people, whether it's uh, exercise, uh, whether it's spiritual help, whether it's peer support, there is a work-life balance that we all have to find. But it's also up to a good manager is to dictate that. Because I've also worked for people that on a Friday or a Saturday, they were asking you questions that could have waited for a Monday morning. So sometimes we do that to ourselves. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I, you know, and it's so important, right, to model it, right? Yeah. I mean, because you can tell people all day long, oh no, I want you to maintain work-life balance, but if they sit and you sit, they see you sitting in the office there eight or nine at night, absent a crisis, yeah. um, how, how comfortable are they gonna feel you know, leaving while you're sitting there with the lights on. I mean, so it's. Yeah, because I, I, I literally had employees uh, and even adjutants that did not believe that they could leave before the boss mm -hmm. left. So I would mm -hmm. go uh, up and down the hallway, uh, turning off lights, telling people it was time to go home. And these are life lessons, honestly, that I wish that I would have incorporated early on. But in your initial stages, when you're climbing that ladder, you think that there's mm -hmm. nothing more that's important. Well, that's false. You need to have your employees fresh. Uh, you can't burn them out because there's always going to be an issue, incident, or crisis 
uh, in any organization. Yeah. yeah I, I, I want to revisit because you made this point that I've never really quite heard expressed in this way before in that we all know that, you know, we can fatigue our employees and we think about the impacts that has in the workplace. But I love your emphasis on how that also has an impact on their families, which, of course, is going to lead to situations, um, even if you're selfishly minded, that are going to impact the mission that they're charged to do anyway. So uh, that's such an important point you have a grave responsibility that extends beyond just what's happening in the four walls of your building. Well, Kumar, I can't tell you how many times I miss birthdays, anniversaries, long deployments out uh, in the middle of the desert where I miss special occasions uh, in the life of my children. So one of the life lessons that I've had now is is if it is something that we can put off till tomorrow or after the weekend, do it because you never get those uh, years back. Uh, my, my daughters tell me now that I seem to enjoy my grandchildren much more than I enjoyed them. I said, yeah, different now being retired. But uh, if I could turn back the clock, I think I would have made many decisions that were different because those are valuable years that you miss out on. And rest assured, the problem that you're facing now will still be there in the morning, like I said, <laughs> unless right. it's a crisis. Yeah. What uh, when you look back over a career that spans yeah more than thirty years in law enforcement, um, is there a particular leadership challenge that stands out as one of the toughest you face? Well, I would think that that boils down to the adversity that's uh, caused sometimes by an employee's action, whether it's a shooting, a rollover, accident. So sometimes dealing with these situations wherever you're at in the country, uh, it's going to be a significant challenge because oftentimes it's it means that there's been a loss of life or some other uh, significant impact. So those have probably been the most challenging. And also any time that I've had to uh, bury an agent who was killed in the line of duty and facing the family and talking to to them about those things, those are all things that start to wear on you. Uh, That's why I talk, when we talk about resiliency of the importance, because you can imagine command is a very lonely place. After 25, 30 years, how many chinks in your armor do you also have personally? So what is your release? Is it talking to someone about it? How do most law enforcement officers cope with these problems of seeing uh, death, of seeing, uh, you know, very uh, sad situations, uh, the stress, how do they deal with some turn to alcohol, some turn to other uh, different vices? So, I mean, I think we were very late uh, as law enforcement in understanding the problem and also helping our our employees cope with these issues. So I think the more and more managers understand that there are things that we can do, that there's peer support and chaplain services available that can help our people to better off we're going to be as organizations. Now, this was a passion of yours, correct? Didn't yes. you have a hand in, in developing the resiliency uh, within the Border Patrol? Yep. Could you tell us a little bit about that? So I was asked to come up to Washington, D.C. Uh, in 2016 uh, to be actually the first acting uh, director of the National Resiliency Program. And the, the unfortunate reason that it was brought into play is we had a very high number of suicides within the organization at that point in time. But the Resiliency Task Force did not just solely concentrate on uh, suicide. It was uh, how do you cope with stress? 
work-life balance, uh, alcoholism, uh, domestic violence. So we looked at it broadly of how we could help our employees reach out and talk to someone. Because honestly, in law enforcement for years, there was a stigma that if you reached out to someone, it was a, a some uh, sign of weakness. And that's what we tried to dispel. There is no weakness in reaching out for help. It's when you have lost all hope uh, that you turn to the vices or you turn uh, to uh, wanting to end your life or something. So I think we had to do better with an organization the size of ours in reaching out to uh, the Department of Defense, to other agencies that were, were well ahead of us. So I think my work uh, that I started uh, with the Resiliency Task Force uh, was extremely beneficial to the organization in trying to analyze the microcosms of what some of that stress was about and what we could do as an organization is to help the employees cope with it. You, in, in our employees, our line of business in uh, border security, you know, can be controversial at times. Yes. And there are all these different pressures that come to bear. I think, you know, in the past year, uh, well, maybe even more than that, there's been these uh, this additional sense of, I think, law enforcement getting a bad rap. Uh, when I would say, you know, the vast majority of, uh, of public servants and law enforcement want to do good, want to help people. I, you know, I remember visiting your sector and seeing um, so many agents that were, you know, bending over backwards to care for the uh, people that were in their in their custody. Uh, and I, you know, I heard account after account of people that were doing things on their own to uh, to take care of some of the minors that were mm -hmm. in custody. What? How do we deal with that? How do we help uh, you know agents on the line be resilient in terms of this this unfair perception that um, that is being kind of put out there as far as being heartless or inhumane or that kind of a thing. Yeah, and it's the furthest thing from the truth because people aren't robots. Uh, they're not uh, inhumane. Uh, I have actually found in law enforcement, as you described, people who really care uh, about service to their communities. And that's exactly what I found uh, in the Border Patrol. In many of these migrant shelters, I found agents who volunteered, brought in toys, uh, books, uh, read uh, to children, did things that were not in their job descriptions. So I think, first of all, the American people need to be educated truly of who they have in law enforcement, which are some amazing people. But these amazing people also inherited a situation that they didn't ask for. I mean, facilities uh, being overwhelmed, crowded, it was not their doing. Uh, these are things that we had no way of getting out of. So just for people to understand that uh, is going to be beneficial. But then get to know uh, law enforcement. I think a lot of that is our fault. Uh, because in many police uh, departments, look at what they've done over the years. Every, everything has become very motorized. All they see is the police driving by, whereas in years past, you had big cops who walked around, who did uh, different things with the community. Community engagement needs to be key because people need to understand. But so is the transparency piece. People should be able to come in our facilities as they did back in 2019. I had over 400 members of Congress who came down uh, to the Rio Grande Valley, 
had members of the media who came down because I wanted them to see this problem firsthand, that it wasn't one that DHS, CBP, and the Border Patrol should bear. This was a whole of government that needed to step forward and say, how can we help out in this situation? And that uh, readily condemned. So I, mm -hmm. I had numerous examples of people who are in our facilities who talked to our agents who said they felt nothing but secure. I had uh, many agents who were parents and grand, uh, grandparents who volunteered for these assignments, changing diapers, doing things that, that, like I said, you will not find in any job description of a law enforcement officer. So I think people just need to understand uh, and see the person. Yeah. So would you, you, you referenced the, this, this unique circumstance that you had to deal with as a leader, as, as the top commander in the sector, the busiest border corridor uh, uh, across the southwest border. Help people understand what the unique challenges were and why, um, you know, why it, it differentiated from routine operations up to that point. Yeah. So first of all, 40 to 60% of my workforce was assigned to do humanitarian, which meant the care, the feeding, the transportation, the hospital watch, all of these things took law enforcement agents away from their regular jobs, which is patrolling the border, intercepting criminals, uh, intercepting the narcotics that was coming across. Agents still understood the importance of taking care of people, which we did, but it's something that amazes me over the years that we never seem to learn from previous administrations and what's happened. And we continue to repeat this mistake saying, oh, this is a board patrol problem or it's a CBP problem or a DHS problem. We should have had the resources in place long ago to care for children and family units. All of the board patrol facilities across the nation that were constructed were built uh, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, uh, when we predominantly arrested single male nationals from Mexico. We were not prepared to deal with families and children that we were now seeing, especially unaccompanied children, uh, some of which were tender age below six years. So you can imagine the hardship that that also uh, caused on our workforce because they're used to dealing with the crime, with the drugs, intercepting illegal immigration, but nowhere in uh, a policy manual does it tell you or show you how you're gonna take care of a child or a family. As this migration wave is, is um, developing out of the Northern Triangle mm -hmm. and all of these family units and unaccompanied minors are showing up at your doorstep, Tell us a little bit about how you rallied your team to to respond to that. You know, how did you, you when we talk about kind of leading change or leading people, we talk about kind of a common vision. We talk about innovative responses. What are the types of things you did to to lead your team, you know, with with the resources that were available? Well, first of all, talking to them and, of course, my bosses, but. A critical importance of this was communicating to the workforce of exactly the importance of what they were doing, and then also getting out of your office and contributing, whether it was transporting for a day to help them out. And that's something that I've always asked my managers to do, is when you become overwhelmed, is find the resources 
that are maybe in administrative positions is to help them out. That goes a long way in carrying out uh, uh, your mission, but also helping the workforce that, that's overwhelmed. Uh, but uh, communication with leadership was key, uh, talking to non-governmental organizations to see where they could help, uh, talking to external partners in the community is to find out because some people think that it's only the agencies that are impact, but think of the impacts on the communities that you serve that are all, uh, that are already overwhelmed and are seeing more people showing up uh, at different uh, uh, charity houses and stuff. So it's getting them to understand, it's getting to see how they can help out uh, while bigger government, of course, responds uh, uh, in a slower fashion. But it's community engagement, it's transparency with your workforce, and then it's also leading by example. Getting out there and doing the things that you can do is to help ease up uh, some of the confusion, to help relieve someone who may be tired uh, to, to go out and take a break for a little bit. I'd like to key in on the point you made about these partnerships, you know, and not just not just across government, but with the community as well, the community engagement. Uh, what's an example of, of, you know, how you formed a partnership with, you know, a non-governmental agency that that made for a better situation? Well, first of all, many of them wanted to bring in things for the families and, and children. So it's developing that relationship to where if there's any clothes that they can bring, if there are any toys uh, that you could bring, is to start those discussions. So I would uh, stress to any leader or manager going into a new area, is start making your contacts uh, with external partners. And by that, I don't only mean in law enforcement. Uh, you have to know uh, the people in the medical health uh, businesses uh, profession. You have to get out and meet uh, uh, people from non-governmental or, uh, organizations. You have to meet business people because at the end of the day, people want to help. And sometimes it's simply picking up the phone and being able to connect them uh, with others who can bring a valuable service uh, to the table. Now, did you encounter any challenges like just within um, government in terms of people locked in silos and not wanting to not wanting to kind of touch, you know, uh, that, that problem or take it on or own a piece of it? Did you did you run into any of that? Well, I mean, we did get the volunteers that came down, of course, uh, from DHS to help us out. Coast Guard uh, Department of Defense uh, was a tremendous partner to us. But it's also recognizing that Congress had an opportunity to help fix some of these problems because the reason that we were overcrowded uh, was the fact is that the bed space situation existed uh, with Immigration Customs Enforcement. And you also had challenges with health uh, and human uh, services with the Office of uh, Refugee Resettlement. So if, when you have limited capacity to turn people over to, of course, it just starts to become more and more of your problem. So it's not necessarily that they didn't want to help out. It's just yeah. that the funding stream didn't follow uh, uh, to help them to be able to assist us with the overcrowding at the border at the time. So, you, I mean, you have 400 Congress members of Congress come through and see the situation for themselves. Clearly, they've got to come away impacted by just how overwhelming I mean, the, the, the challenge is, what do you think prevented 
faster movement. I mean, what, what, why, why could we not direct resources faster, more? What, what got in the way of that? I think bipartisanship, honestly, the politics, uh, and and that's unfortunately something uh, that over the last few years you saw a lot of gridlock. I think what uh, people have to do is they have to expect uh, that their elected officials are going to come together to try to solve problems. We looked at 2019 when we had the tremendous influence, but if you look previous to that, you had 2014 with unaccompanied children uh, that arrived at the border, and here we are in 2021, still talking about the same thing, Kumar. I think that that's uh, what frustrates me about it, is you can lead so many different border tours and try to educate people, but there has to be a willingness for people to come together and to help solve these problems. And it's simply not about throwing money at Central America as well. I hosted the First Ladies of Guatemala and Honduras uh, in RGV in 2019, and I said, this cannot be solely about money. It has to be about self-governance. If people are fleeing for poverty, if they're fleeing the violence, if they're fleeing for because of criminal activity, those are all pieces that we can do uh, is to help. But this has to be a regional approach. Central America, South America, Mexico, United States sitting back is to look at these challenges. And immigration is not just solely a challenge that we face. If you look all around the world right now, you're seeing uh, people who are fleeing. So I think that there's much more that we can do on the refugee side of this to where we're looking uh, at people going to embassies overseas to make their claim so that they avoid this dangerous trek of coming up through Mexico on such a dangerous journey, being placed in the hands of criminal organizations who exploit these people, who abuse these people, uh, and, and some of them unfortunately die. So if you were border czar for the day, based on your long experience, and you've served you know, as an attache in Mexico, yes. and you've coordinated, as you indicated, with, uh, with foreign governments, what's the answer? Like, what are the pieces, the essential pieces that need to be in place to, to best manage and control the border? Well, first of all, it's a regional approach. We have to, if we're waiting to intercept people on our southern border, then it's too late. We have to push that border outward. We have to work with Mexico and Central America. It's the first out help uh, them solve some of the problems that I talked about with self-government. But then it's also exchange information, uh, which is vital to security of all of the different countries, but start those partnerships to where there is regular engagement, there's sound conversation, uh, that's going on because everybody wants a safe and tranquil border, whether it's Mexico, whether it's any country in Central America. So I think we have to do more. We have to look at uh, uh, the refugee uh, problem, uh, as I indicated, but it uh, does not solely have to be a U.S. problem. I mean, in 2019, I saw a lot of people that were granted asylum and work authorizations in Mexico who did not want to stay there. They wanted to come to the United States. So is the United States always going to be that problem solver? I think there needs to be broader engagement. I think that there needs to be better coordination that, that is involved. And that's the one thing that I will strive for uh, as a border czar is to try to improve that. It's having the confidence to work with partners just like I did in RGV is to try to solve an issue. And it does not just have to be the government, it's the non-governmental organizations 
it's the businesses in those different countries is to see what we can accomplish. So, and I, I, I like the holistic approach you're outlining. Um, when it comes to the, um, the folks that arrive, they're, they're at the border, they're now, we, 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 we detain them. I mean, we've talked, you know, for many years about, you know, the importance of ending catch and release. How important is uh, detention and timely removal to uh, this idea of deterrence so people don't make the journey in the first place? Well, it's critical. Uh, and at the end of the day, I, I think I also want to correct for people. When a Border Patrol agent or an officer from field operations encounters someone who's making a credible fear in asylum, simply by taking them into, into custody doesn't stop them from making that claim. There is still a channel that they're going to proceed with in doing it. But I think deterrence is key to those people who don't qualify for credible fear or asylum, that they're immediately repatriated back to their country of origin. Because otherwise what you have is you have that push-pull factor. If people start to see that they're simply going to be released in the interior, and now we're talking about uh, ICE uh, not doing interior enforcement in a lot of uh, areas, uh, then that's clear invitation for more people to come to the country illegally. So there has to be a balance between services and enforcement, but enforcement does need to have teeth behind it. I've served through six different administrations. Uh, we have done numerous different uh, uh, things throughout the years in changing policies to try to improve the situation, but yet we still see thousands of people heading to our borders. Uh, simply disregarding the laws that we have in this country. So, I mean, we have to take a strong approach on that as well. So when you, when you look at the current uh, crisis at the, at the border now, uh, and you think about your experience in 2019, what's different about it? Well, I think uh, on this particular one, so I'll walk you back to, to 2019. It was what I would call is the perfect storm. If you remember correctly, we had uh, a CR, continuing resolution, today, meaning that the government was shut down through about January, February uh, timeframe. Then all of, a sudden, uh, all of a sudden, the numbers started shooting up high. And in RGV, in one month alone, we made 50,000 apprehensions. Uh, it took us some time to establish some of the policies that were in place, coordinating with Central America, uh, on some needed changes uh, in their policies as well, uh, and finally clamp this down. I think what happened this time around is people started receiving mixed messages. You had people that were waiting in Mexico uh, from the previous administration to stay in Mexico policy, and all of a sudden they started hearing, well, this administration plans to do away with all of that, and all of a sudden people started coming to the border. So I think a lot of this could have been avoided simply in controlling the message. The other thing that I wish this administration would have done, gone down to the border initially, is to talk to the subject matter expert to see what was working, what was not. I recognize that every administration is gonna to wanna to tweak a policy or make adjustments, but wouldn't you want to first talk to uh, those subject matter experts about what they need and what was working before you decided to do away with them. So I think uh, this time around, uh, more of it was self-inflicted uh, in the fact is that we were sending out mixed messages to people and we started to see 
a definite climb uh, in uh, the number of apprehensions. Also during the time when we had a pandemic, uh, most of the people right. that they're encountering right now uh, yeah. are turning up positive uh, for COVID. So I think it's something that we have to be very careful at when we're trying to limit uh, the number of or limit the travel between states right now. We're actually saying that it's okay to open the borders. So we got to be careful with this thing. You must remain connected to the folks that are still on active duty, still doing their jobs, trying to do the best they can to, to respond to this. Um, what what is their morale like? Well, it, it's it's been hard uh, once again is to relive what happened in 2019 now in 2021. But uh, I think we're going to struggle just like uh, a lot of law enforcement agencies are right now uh, with recruitment. But one of the things that surprised me even more is the number of people now that we're seeing that first reach uh, eligibility for retirement that are leaving the organization. I mean, during my time, uh, I mean, I don't know if I was right or wrong, but I stayed until they forced me out. We had many people who did 30 uh, years, but now you're seeing a lot of the workforce, as soon as they hit their 20 or their 25 when they become first eligible, are leaving. And that's, that's a troubling trend because I think that this is still a valuable group of law enforcement professionals that we should be retaining uh, in the service of, of an organization. And it would be so unfortunate is to see people leave because they're frustrated uh, and stressed out by what's happening once again. So we've kind of been talking about all of these challenges uh, from 2019, the ones that are current here in, in 2021. Um, what advice would you give to the leaders that are having to to deal with this now? What what are three important things that they should be doing to to get to get their their troops through this and to do the best they can to, to staunch the flow? Well, communication is going to be key. I mean, I know that we have talked about this numerous times, but there's a difference between sending out an email and getting out there and talk to troops. You have to let them vent. Uh, oftentimes, mm. I would go out and sit in musters uh, and just have a listening to is to hear the frustration of what was going on, trying to help. What's them. important about that? What What is important about letting them vent? Well, you have to, because if no one is listening to their input, uh, then once again, uh, you have the potential of the disgruntled employee who becomes very sarcastic. Uh, who does not care about the job. And I think we all signed up in law enforcement because we care about our job. So I think listening is key to this. Uh, letting them have that moment is to vent with them. Because as a leader, believe it or not, that those are the things that you have to do. It's not about closing the door, recognizing that there's a problem out there. Getting out there, talking to the people, making them understand is that you do care about a uh, terrible situation that they're in uh, and that you're trying to do everything that you can reasonably possible is to change that. But also just being able to listen is critical. You know, I think your point is, is well taken in the sense that whenever you look at the federal employee viewpoint surveys, at least when I saw them and reviewed them when I was at ICE, the first line supervisors generally fared pretty well. You know, they might have had 60, 70 percent kind of approval. The moment you went up to middle management or senior executives, the um, the regard for them fell off, and largely I think because they don't see them. 
They don't know. They first off assume that they have more authority or power than than they than they may have. But then secondly, I think it's just the the level of engagement and interaction isn't there. So they they don't they don't have this comfort level that they are human beings that are fighting and advocating on their behalf. Well, you have to be in touch with the with the workforce, and the only way you do that is by that constant communication. I used to tell all of my subordinate managers, your biggest asset in this organization is your people. Get out there and talk to them. They need to see you, good, bad, or indifferent. Even if you're delivering a bad message, just getting out there and talking to them. But also make things special. I mean, one of the things that I saw early on as a manager that I said I would never allow to happen was a service award for a very tenured employee that was placed in a mail drawer. I mean, it's the recognition, it's the praise that you uh, need to give uh, them as well. So these are the things that I've always stressed to people is that daily contact with employees. And I recognize as senior leaders, you're going to be very busy and that's not always possible. But even the five minutes that you can push away from your desk and simply walk down the hall and talk to the administrative assistants or talk to the people in budget, uh, it's refreshing for them is to see the boss come in and show an interest in their job and their well-being. I, I think that's so true. I, I, I think that goes farther than cash awards. I mean, yeah. to, to know that you truly are interested in what they do and you recognize and your praise is specific. Yeah. Uh, I think that's so important. Yeah. Well, Rudy, what advice would you give to someone that's looking to begin a career in the Border Patrol? Well, first of all, the Border Patrol gave me opportunities, Kumar, that I, I would have probably never had had I stayed. Uh, as a police officer in Texas. So it gave me opportunities to travel. Never in my mind would I have dreamed that I would have been able is to serve in Mexico as the attache, to head our internal affairs up in DC, is to work on a resiliency program, uh, a resiliency program that we had up there. So it's given me tremendous opportunities is to engage uh, with people that I would never have had the opportunity. I've developed friendships with people in Mexico uh, that will last a lifetime. So it's just having that opportunity. Uh, I think it's a rewarding career, but it's what you make of it. I mean, I started as a GS5 and worked my way up to a senior executive uh, service position. And I always kept telling myself, well, I'm not ready. And some of the mentors up at the top tapped me on the shoulder and said, I will tell you when you're ready. So it's finding the people who can mentor, who can guide you, but it is such a rewarding career with so many different opportunities that I would recommend it to anyone. It's unfortunate, once again, that they're getting a bad rap, uh, but uh, there is no greater feeling uh, than helping out, uh, providing a critically important job for the country uh, with national security on our borders. Uh, so, uh, like I said, highly recommend it to anyone who's pursuing a career. Rudy, thank you uh, for taking the time today to share some some nuggets of wisdom, some things that we can kind of take uh, take to heart and uh, and apply as we uh, continue to lead whatever it is we lead. Recognizing that everyone's a leader, not just people in formal positions, but just right. people that are influencing others from a position of trust and respect, and I, and your emphasis on transparency and communication, all uh, all important to kind of keep in mind. Thank you. Thank you, Kumar.